We're going to read through uh, the first 11 verses, and then we'll continue for there. So uh, if I might ask you to stand today out of reverence for God's Word, I'll read it. You can follow along, or you can just listen. But we want to be able to hear God's Word and receive it, and we want to stand out of reverence for it today. Beginning with uh, chapter 6, verse 1. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asks, asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And, a man there whose, and there was a man there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you've called us to this place. All of us have gotten here through different means, through different reasons on our end, on our side of the curtain. And yet, Father, you've orchestrated all of them. Not one moment of our life has been beyond your planning. Everything that has led us to this moment, the good, the bad, the indifferent, the exuberant times, the horrible tragedies, every part of it meant to bring us to the foot of the cross that we might see Jesus. And once we have come to you and received your salvation in Jesus Christ, every part of it designed to shape us, to make us more like Him. Father, today as we open Your Word, we ask that You would help us to be able to see rightly. Shine a light on Your Word by Your Holy Spirit, Father. And as we are moving, as we're moving toward the conclusion of it, Lord, let this be something that is bigger than just our our minds, our mental ascent. Let this be something that digs deep into who we are. That we might recognize you. Teach us to lean wholly on your word, to trust in you with every part of us. Not to lean on our own understanding. But Lord, teach us to submit to you in every one of our ways that you might straighten our paths. These things we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. 
As Shelly mentioned, next week we're going to be uh, participating in the Three Oaks Civil War Days celebration, and uh, they'll have some reenactments and so on, and we will uh, do our best to try to give a, a feel of what a church service might have been like uh, in the 1860s, uh, particularly in a camp setting, and uh, I want to make sure that it doesn't turn into theater and acting. This is about the Lord only. But it does help us to be able to, to look back at that. You know, it, as we were going through this, uh, I learned something that I had not thought about before. Now, hopefully, we all can recognize that when you um, secede from the Union, when you uh, engage in warfare against the United States government, the Constitution recognizes that as treason. All right? Can we all agree to that? So by the Constitution's definition of treason, Jefferson Davis, all of the generals, and every single soldier and even civilian that took part in this rebellion against the United States was guilty of treason and subject to execution. But you know, not one person was executed for treason by the U.S. government following the Civil War. I was surprised by that. Many were jailed, more civilians than, uh, than participants, than soldiers. You didn't see that happen as much, but what you saw was civilians tried, generally by their local magistrates or persecuted by their peers, civilians, outside of the legal system. But no one was executed even though the letter of the law dictated that they ought to have been. Why is that? Well, the United States government, beginning with President Lincoln and, uh, and continuing through all of those who would succeed him, President Johnson and, and uh, Congress and the states, recognized that if we were going to preserve the Union after this war, we were going to have to come together and recognize some things that were bigger than the letter of the law. There was a purpose that was greater than just seeing it, reading it, and executing it. While those same folks who committed treason fought against the United States government, the U.S. government the Union went to great lengths to help the South actually promote many of its generals as heroes. The U.S. government did that. They believed that there was a greater purpose at stake. Today, as we're looking at Luke, at Luke chapter 6, we're going to see a group of people who missed that. Jesus who is God in the flesh, the exact representation of the Father, the invisible God made visible for us, is able to take a look at what God did in giving the law, in giving the Sabbath, and see reality, not just the letter of the law. As we have uh, read this already, we'll kind of try to work through some of it. I know I had a water bottle here. There we go. I won't make it through if I don't have some water. <clears throat> As we look through the, the text, we can see that Jesus, in the first couple of verses, uh, 
is being attacked. Now, I got to wonder, these folks must have been trailing him, right? Because are you going to notice naturally some people walking through a field who happened to pick a couple of grains, uh, heads of grain off of some stalks and just rub them in their hands and pop them in their mouths? Is that going to jump out at you? Is that going to be something that catches your attention, even visually? Even if you are someone who is passionate about the Sabbath and you're looking for things, you're going to have to look pretty close to notice people at a distance who happen to be grabbing some stalks and sticking some stuff in their mouth. That seems a little weird. Why? Because they're already fired up at this point. In our previous narrative, as we've been walking through this, the Pharisees, the other leaders, uh, and even John's disciples questioned Jesus as they were evaluating. Now we've turned a corner. They're no longer evaluating whether they think Jesus is the Messiah or who, who he says he is. These folks have turned against him. They're seeking to accuse him. And one Sabbath, as they're going through the grain fields, his disciples begin to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And as they're seeing this, they're missing the point. Jesus answers, haven't you read the scriptures? Let's take a look. Because there's more to it than what you're seeing. Here's the point. Here's what we're going to see throughout this entire text. This will be our core reality for today. If you forget all the rest of it, if you don't remember anything about treason in the Civil War, remember this. God's commands are given to enlighten us, not to enslave us. God's commands are given to enlighten us, not to enslave us. Say it with me, please. God's commands are given to enlighten us, not to enslave us. From the very beginning, God gave the law as an instructor, as a tutor, as the New Testament writers would put it, to point forward to Christ. From the very beginning... When sin entered the system, God said, I will send the serpent crusher. The seed of the woman will put an end to this. And yes, the serpent will bruise his heel, but rest assured, he will crush the serpent's head. And ever since that time, mankind, and specifically Israel, was looking forward to the coming one, the Messiah, the serpent crusher. God, from the very beginning, gave instructions to humanity that would draw attention to his heart, to his holiness, and to our sinfulness. God never intended for these things to be something that trapped us. Now imagine, if you will, a parent who watches their children and knows if their children step out of line, they need to discipline them and bring them back. But a good parent doesn't look hoping to catch their kids messing up, right? Some of you may have had those parents. I'm sorry, that's not good parenting. Some of you may have been those parents. Repent, that's not good parenting. A good parent is looking to find the good. Yes, there are parameters because those parameters are for your good to train you, to instruct you, to help you understand what is good and right and true. And a parent has to monitor and cannot be oblivious to the, uh, to the failings and the shortcomings of their children. However, what that good parent wants is to catch their kids doing good. I want to pour out blessings on my kids. I get excited when my kids do well. But when they don't, 
then we're going to have to talk. And when I say talk, that's a euphemism for what might have to happen after that. So God, when he has a little talk with us, that's a pretty big euphemism. God's whisper is a beautiful, gentle thing. But when he has to raise his voice, man, you don't want daddy to raise his voice. God gave the law as an instructor. He gave the law to teach us. His commands are given to enlighten us, not to enslave us, even in the Old Testament. It's interesting that Jesus, now bear in mind, we're still, as we read these stories, we're reading the New Testament Gospels, but we're still really under the Old Covenant. We're still looking at the Old Testament because Jesus hasn't died yet. That's going to come at the end of this story, at the end of this book. And that's when a new way of relating to God comes. And Jesus established last week, as we talked about new wine and old wineskins, that what God is doing in the now is so much bigger than the containers of the past. God is doing something great, and it's new. And we don't get it yet until he does it. Now we begin to see this unfold as he walks through this practical, everyday, physical ministry on earth. And as he's doing this, there are some realities that we're going to see that they missed at the time. God's commands are given to enlighten us, not to enslave us. In other words, God rejects religion that relies on, on rigidly respecting ritual rather than reckoning rightly the reality that the ritual was rendered to reflect, thereby reducing the ritual to rote repetition and rules without reason. Is that okay? Good? You like that? All right. So, if I don't throw in some alliteration periodically, my son and my brother will chase me down and get after me. So that's just for fun. But hopefully that is not a distraction. Hopefully that helps us to grasp what we're talking about. God's not interested in you doing all the right religious stuff. He never has been. In the Old Testament, he wasn't interested in that either. How do I know this? Because while he gives very detailed, specific commands as to how he is to be worshipped, how he is to be approached, and he does not tolerate people approaching him on their own terms, only on his terms, he says through the prophets over and over and over again, Stop with your worship. It's ridiculous and I hate it. You're doing all of the forms, but you're missing the function. You are serving me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. It smells like death. Man, I don't ever want my worship to smell like death to God. Can you imagine hearing that from the Lord? We're singing songs, and we're in church, and we're opening the word, and God says, eh, no. Your worship stinks. There's a stench to it. It smells like when you get that dead mouse in the wall doesn't go away. Some of you know, right? When you go past that roadkill that's been out there for several days that hasn't gotten cleaned up, and you get that funky, disgusting, oh my gosh, what are we going, oh, this is terrible. Or if you go past the pig farm on 12 outside of town, right? <laughs> God says worship that is not engaging the heart, that's just going through the motion, that's how that hits him. That's how it strikes him. God's commands are given to enlighten us, not to enslave us. Now, those who accused Jesus had lost sight of some crucial truths about the commands of God. As they're seeing the disciples walking through, they're seeing the disciples uh, get, you know, these heads of grain and 
this overwhelming workload of rubbing them together in their hands and popping them in their mouths. Unbelievable how, how terrible they, they are. They're looking to catch them doing wrong. Not because they care as much about the disciples as they do about Jesus. They want to get him, and they get him through his people. And then we see Jesus is in the synagogue, as he always is on the Sabbath, and he's teaching. That's his, his regular gig. He's the itinerant preacher in the area. If you'll remember, everyone is talking about his abilities and his talents, and Jesus is the only person there not seeming to be impressed uh, with the talent and ability. His focus is not on uh, the miracles, but on the mission and the message, always. Every miracle he ever does is to glorify the Father and to confirm the message of the gospel that he's bringing. But now, as he's in the synagogue, notice before anything even starts, they recognize that there's a man there who needs a healing. Hey, guys. See that guy with the shriveled hand? Maybe Jesus is going to heal him. Then we've got him. If he'll heal him on the Sabbath, we've got him. Jesus knows what's going on. And it's interesting to me as we, as we read it how this works out. But going through it, uh, <laughs> Jesus never wavers. You notice that? He never is off mission. He never hesitates. He never flinches. He just keeps going forward, doing what the Father sent him to do. Jesus has just established at the end of chapter 5 that the old wineskins of what people expected of God were not going to hold the new wine of what God was now doing. Luke moves from that idea directly into this legalistic rigidity of the guardians of the law in chapter 6. It would seem that the Pharisees and their cronies must have been watching Jesus and his disciples like hawks waiting to swoop down on their prey. The act of what they were doing um, in, in popping off those heads of grain and eating them was permitted by Jewish law. It wasn't theft. That's the thing that always struck me. Like, that's not your grain. What, what are you eating your grain? That, you're stealing. But Jewish law permits that that they could go and they could eat from someone's fields or from someone's orchards. They couldn't gather in baskets. They couldn't take it home. But they could eat what they consumed there on the spot that was provided by God. So the act itself was permitted and not considered theft. However, these accusers sought to claim that they were in fact harvesting by picking that head of grain, threshing by rubbing them together in their hands, and preparing food, thereby desecrating the Sabbath. Notice that Jesus doesn't debate the silliness of their attack. That would be, that would be my thing. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm not Jesus and he's a little better at this than I am. But I'd be like, you're an idiot, right? Jesus doesn't say you're an idiot because he's much more holy than I am. He doesn't debate it. Instead, he essentially grants them their argument. Obviously, it's silly. But rather than debating it, it's okay, let's go with that. And he makes the point that even if the argument were valid, it's not valid. Based on the nature of the Sabbath, this is a really crucial thing. Jesus is going to be exposing to them the nature of the Sabbath. We'll get to that in the next point. And his authority over it, also in the next point. As, 
as he goes through this, he cites David and his men in 1 Samuel 21. Let's go ahead and turn there. So if you're in Luke, turn back to the left. We're going to go back past the Psalms. That's usually about halfway through your Bible. We're going to go to 1 Samuel. You'll notice that uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, those 1 and 2s go together. They were originally uh, one book that were divided into halves. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 21. This particular narrative follows right on the heels of uh, a story that some of you may be familiar with if you grew up in church and went to Sunday school, uh, where David and Jonathan work out this code with um, Jonathan shooting arrows to let David know if he's in danger from King Saul. Uh, David went from being King Saul's favorite to out of jealous rage being the target of his wrath. Saul is trying to kill him. Jonathan confirms this and he lets David know David runs away. That's where we pick up the story in chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, starting with verse 1. David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, uh, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest, uh, The king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, uh, No one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a, at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. So we have sort of a, a practical fib, essentially. He's fleeing from the king, and he is um, not revealing the secret uh, to the priest. Military secrets are being kept. And he's hungry. He's on the lamb, and he needs some food. Verse 4, But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand might underline ordinary bread. I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. <clears throat> However, there is some consecrated bread here. I would underline consecrated bread. I want to see the contrast between. Provided the men have kept themselves from women. So the priest doesn't hesitate to offer this consecrated bread, which we'll talk about in a moment, as long as the men are ritually pure. This consecrated bread was the, the show bread. This was the bread of the presence that was baked and, and set on the table before the presence of God and would stay there until the following Sabbath. When it was changed out each Sabbath, then the priests, and only the priests, would eat the bread that was removed. Notice Ahimelech does not even break stride. He's not concerned about the fact that David and his men are not priests. Because there is a need that trumps that ceremony. The bread of the presence that is before the Lord remains before the Lord. But this that has been removed, God has said this is for the priests. And Ahimelech says, as long as your men are ritually clean, they have not defiled themselves in a way that would make them unfit for worship, then I will provide this for you. Very interesting that he gets it. Now, the Pharisees in Luke 6, they're not thinking in the same terms. And Jesus is drawing their attention to a greater principle that is older. Um, verse 5, David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's, the men's things are holy, even on missions that are not holy. 
In other words, when they're not doing a specifically sacred work, a, a holy war, so to speak, they are still uh, acting as if they are preparing themselves for worship. So they are maintaining a ritual, a ritual purity as they do it. <clears throat> so uh, the men's things are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? Verse 6, So the priest gave them the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. So David is drawing their attention back to that. So they're focused on the Sabbath. David is expanding the concept beyond just that Sabbath day and the ritual of keeping that Sabbath to all of the law. Notice this isn't a Sabbath law he's talking about. This is a sacred law. This is a ceremonial law that was important, but it wasn't the Sabbath itself. So he's saying, look, bigger concept. This is across the board. <clears throat> after, uh, after going through this story, <clears throat> pardon me, Jesus, in appealing to the account, is making it clear, and you might want to write this down, is making it clear that God values people over procedure. They missed the point of this. One of the truths about the commands of God that they missed is that God values people over procedure. Eh, maybe that's a little awkward. If you don't like people over procedure, you can say God values souls over sacraments, if you prefer that. Okay? God values people over procedure or souls over sacraments. It's not that the sacraments, the rituals, the commands are not important. But there's a higher priority. The image bearers, those who are created in God's image, matter more to Him than just the details of the law. And does God have the authority to trump the commands that He's given? Yes or no? You don't sound confident. If God is the law giver, is the law giver greater than the law that was given? Yes, yes absolutely. So when God says, here's the higher priority, that's the higher priority. That's an important thing to recognize because Jesus concludes this conversation with a breathtaking claim about himself. He goes from taking this broad concept that is older than, than any of these priests and their rabbinical traditions. And, and now he says, let me tell you about authority. This claim about himself that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, they're going back to their traditions, what the rabbis in between the Old and New Testaments had laid out. This is the specifics on how we work out the law. God had given the law, and the rabbis said, well, maybe we need to add a little bit to it. Now, before we get too crazy about it, their intentions were good. Unfortunately, good intentions are pavement for the road to hell. So their, their intentions might have been good. They wanted people to be serious about God's law. They didn't want them to get close to it. This might have been what Adam told Eve. Hey, you know, God said don't eat that tree. Don't even go close to it. Don't even get close to that tree because God doesn't want us to eat it. So don't go near it. Eve turns that around and when she talks to the, the serpent, she says, God said not to eat of it or even touch it. That's not what he said. So by adding things to God's word, we distort God's word. That's what had happened over time. In an effort to defend God, 
who doesn't need defending. They added to God's word. So Jesus now says, the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. The Sabbath lies at the very heart of Jewish law, Jewish tradition, and Jewish culture. It actually predates the law of Moses. The Sabbath isn't just from the Ten Commandments. It's older than that. Not only is it older than that, it's before the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even before sin entered the world at Eden, God consecrated the day of rest. Turn, if you would, to the book of Genesis. Easy to find. It's all the way in the front. Because Genesis means beginning. So it wouldn't make sense anywhere else, would it? Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look at the first three verses of Genesis chapter 2. Chapter 1 is laying out for us the, the days of creation. And as God creates very specifically, and He creates in stages, and at every stage He says, this is good, and He completes it, and on the sixth day He creates humanity, and creates humanity specifically in His image. Male and female, by design, by God's choice, representing Him. And then this, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work He had been doing. So on the seventh day, He rested from all His work. Literally, He ceased from all His work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it He rested from all the work of creating that He had done. Now, the word Sabbath literally means ceasing, a cessation. It does not mean seventh. It's not, the word Sabbath is not related to the seventh day. It is on the seventh day in creation, and God sets it apart that way. But the concept of the Sabbath is bigger, and it's used in a variety of contexts. Not the least of which, in fact, I would say the most, the greatest of which, is the Sabbath rest that the people of God find in Christ. Here, Jesus is looking at the Sabbath as bigger. And yet, he sees himself as the master of the Sabbath. God established the cessation of labor on the, on the seventh day and set it apart as a gift and a tool. It was not given to make life difficult or burdensome, but to remind humanity that God is our creator and provider. Now, there will always be work to do. And especially then, in an agrarian society, they didn't punch a clock. It was always work. There was always work to do. Do you ever feel like your work can never be caught up? Some of you do, right? No matter how much, you know, your daily to-do list is about three days long. So you keep on going. And if I just work, if I had eight days a week, I could maybe start to catch up. But God says you're going to work on six days, and on the seventh day, you're going to set that apart so that you remember, so that you remember that He is your creator and your provider. It's not the strength of your effort that carries you. It's the God who provides. And this Sabbath rest, much like the tithe, is designed to be a voluntary act of worship, a commanded voluntary act of worship, but voluntary nonetheless, to remind us 
that God is God and we are utterly dependent on him. We are not in control. Important for us to recognize. So if this was given to us as a gift and a tool and it was all the way back at creation, it's built in because God chose to rest even though the inexhaustible God did not himself need to rest. We are to follow suit as an act of worship and a tool to cause us to remember that our own efforts will never be enough. The sacred cessation of labor is intended to humble us and make us grateful, not burden us and make us slaves to ritual. The statement that Jesus is making is not subtle, nor is it small. If Jesus claims to be Lord of the Sabbath, then he is indeed claiming to be God himself. For God alone created the Sabbath, and he alone is Lord over it. Right? You follow the logic? Does it make sense? Only God is Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Matthew's account goes into more depth here. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Just a couple of books in front of Luke. Same story. Matthew's, uh, Matthew's telling of it is a little different. Not so much different as deeper, more detailed. He has a different purpose in mind as he tells this. Each of the gospel writers writing from a different vantage point. And they all have a different purpose in their writing. This is the, the differences between them. Take a look at Matthew 11. We're going to start with verse 27. Boy, when they make the letters red, it's really hard to read in there. <clears throat> verse 27. Jesus says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Nobody has the full concept of God but God. Verse 28, Come to me, He says, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then he goes in in chapter 12 to the exact same story that we're reading. Why is that significant? Because Jesus is leading into this story, as Matthew tells it. He leads into this story by establishing that everything has been entrusted to the Son. The Son is in charge of it all. Including, as we see here, the Sabbath. As the Lord of the Sabbath, where everything has been entrusted to Him, Jesus knows the reason behind the ceremony. They're focused on the, the, you know, the details of the letter of the law. Jesus knows the spirit of the law because He's the one that gave it. He's the one that knows it inside and out. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Because of this authority, Jesus is able to emphasize to them that God values reality over ritual. Mark that down. God values reality over ritual. There's no amount of ritual keeping that is going to please God if it misses the point of the reality that the ritual was intended to reflect. 
When God renders a ritual, he renders a ritual to reflect a reality. That's the reason. So as Jesus is unfolding this for them, he's saying, look, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I can say this with authority. You're missing the point. It's not in, in Matthew, as he tells it. <clears throat> excuse me, if you're still in Matthew, you can see it there. In Matthew, as he tells it, um, starting with verse 3, Jesus responds to them in a little longer blurb than what Luke records. He says, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? So by going into the Holy of Holies, they are by definition violating the Holy of Holies. They're desecrating the temple. But God does not judge them for it. He renders them innocent. Haven't you read that in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that no, that no one greater than... Let me try this again with actual words. I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Turn to Mark chapter 2 if you would. We'll see the same story told by Mark with another little detail in there. Mark chapter 2. We get right to the point, which is in chapter 2, verse 27. After explaining the law... Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given as a gift, as an instructor, not as a trap, not as shackles. God values reality over ritual. Then as Luke's narrative continues, <coughs> excuse me, the scene moves into the synagogue. So we're back in Luke again. Uh, and as the scene moves into the synagogue, Jesus encounters a man with a shriveled hand. And the law keepers, the law monitors, are after him again. Looking for a way to catch him messing up so that they can get rid of him. They want to catch him healing on the Sabbath and bring an accusation against him. I love verse 8. <laughs> this, maybe it won't strike you as, as funny as it does me. So it says, let's look at it. Verse, let's start with verse 7 just so we can roll into this context. All right. So um, verse 7, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Ooh, intrigue. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. Now, when I see that Jesus knew what they were thinking, I see that but, this contrast... Jesus knew what they were thinking. What seems like it should flow out was he waited for an opportune moment. Or, but Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he didn't heal anyone today. But Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he did this in secret. But notice how Jesus handles these ridiculous and false accusations. He runs right into it. 
But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everybody. So he got up and stood there. Jesus doesn't hide. He doesn't go into stealth mode. Instead, he puts the man on stage and puts a spotlight on him. He wants to bring out this situation. <coughs> Excuse me. He wants to make sure that everybody sees and hears what's about to happen. And then he calls them out on their hypocrisy. All the while, now, now grab this contrast if you will. All the while they're striving and working and focus on trying to ruin Jesus. He's just continuing to focus on God's word and loving people. They're working at their evil on the Sabbath. He's doing good things simply by being who he is and letting it flow from him. It's not even work for Jesus. Notice what happens when he heals him, right? Uh, so in Matthew 12, he uses the illustration of, of a man whose sheep falls in a pit on the Sabbath. Same story, and Jesus said, so if any of you guys had one of your sheep fall into a pit or a ditch, you're just going to leave them there? Of course not. You're going to get them out of the ditch. So that's not a, a Sabbath violation. You're doing a good thing. You're doing a right thing. You're missing the point of the Sabbath if you don't get that. Then he says the same thing that he says here in Luke. <clears throat> Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to save life? or to destroy it. The implication is that people who bear God's image are much more important than sheep, and the lines between Jesus and these law monitors clearly drawn now. He's saying, look, this is good. What you're doing is evil. You're working to try to ruin my life, as if you can. I'm not working at all. Notice how he heals the man. Jesus said to them, I ask you which is lawful, to do good or to, to do evil. Verse 10, he looked around at them all. <laughs> In uh, Matthew and Mark, he kind of points out, they both point out that he looks at each of them. Jesus looks around. You can imagine the awkward eye contact going on, right? He looks around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He doesn't touch him. He doesn't grab him. He doesn't try to work his fingers loose. Jesus just says, stretch out your hand. There's no effort involved here. Jesus isn't violating the Sabbath. Here's the thing. After, after doing all of this, this guy stretches out his hand. Jesus tells him to do the one thing he can't do. Jesus could have told him, jump up and down, do jumping jacks, you know, any of those things, sing a song. He tells him to stretch out his hand. He goes right into his weakness, right into the pain, right into the thing that doesn't work. And for the first time in forever, do not sing the song, please, Jesse. For the first time in who knows how long, the man actually does. Now, maybe that's hard for you to get. The older I get, the easier it is for me to recognize that sometimes my mind can tell my body to do things, and my body says, no, I ain't doing it. 
Uh, and any of you who have watched me play softball know that sometimes I say do it, but my body says no. This man had to be wondering, Jesus, come on, really? You're going to humiliate me in front of everybody? And bam, he does the one thing he couldn't do. Jesus goes right to the heart of this. His heart is for the man. Don't misunderstand. Jesus has the whole picture that you and I often don't. He is doing this for the man's healing. He's doing it as a confirmation of the message so that the, the gospel can be proliferated, so that people can see the authority that he has. Just as we saw in, in chapter 3 and 4 and 5, that Jesus has authority over both the physical and spiritual realms. So when he speaks in a spiritual way, as he's speaking of God's word, he speaks authoritatively. And he proves it by saying, you're healed. Stretch out your hand. And he does. So the worst they could have come up with, by the way, is the man violated because of that hard effort of stretching his hand out. Jesus didn't do anything. He just lived as who he already was. He wants the man right with God. And he uses this physical healing to further that. But notice they're not concerned about the man. And even though they act like they're concerned about God, are they? If they were really concerned about God's will, as Jesus said in Matthew, figure out what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's quoting Hosea chapter 6, where the prophet is speaking for God and saying, look, all of your worship means nothing. What I want is your heart. What I want is for you to engage with people in a way that reflects my heart. For you to love others the way I have loved you. And in Hosea, that's a particularly powerful image. Because God has called the prophet Hosea to marry a woman, shall we say, of ill repute. She is unfaithful to him. Not only is she unfaithful to him, she's publicly unfaithful to him. She gets herself into an enslavement with her wayward behavior, she ends up essentially in what we would recognize today as trafficking. And while she has flaunted her unfaithfulness, Hosea remains faithful, even buying her back, redeeming her out of her slavery. This is a picture of God's faithful love to unfaithful Israel and unfaithful Rich Zeiger. Unfaithful people today. So when God shows this picture of, hey, listen, I desire compassion, mercy, not ritualistic sacrifices, if you're following Hosea's story in Israel, that hits. That hits hard. And here today, They've missed this point. They're so focused on the rule keeping that they've forgotten that God values heart over habit. God values heart over habit. Really important for us to get this because it's really easy for us even now, even in a, in a free church, evangelical, come as you are, casual kind of setting, it's easy for us to get caught up 
in the behaviors, in the appearances, in doing the right things or not doing the wrong things so that people think we've got it together. And we can be trapped by that. So we begin to judge one another's spirituality by what we do or don't do. And we continue to judge ourselves even in this performance-based way when what Jesus is saying and always has been saying is, I'm doing the doing for you. Get on board with me. This is why he says in Matthew, come to me and you'll find rest. Now, that's not a sit-down, quit kind of rest. Because we are still in the yoke with him. The yoke is that thing that holds oxen or horses together as they're pulling a plow or, or, or you know, as they're going through that work. There's work to be done. There's work remaining for us. So we must not idle stand. However, he is pulling with us. He is pulling for us. He's doing the work. And the reality of our salvation is that he already did all of the work. Therefore, he can say, when you come to me, I will unburden you. I will refresh your soul. Because my yoke, my burden, it's easy. It's light. I will carry you. God, <coughs> excuse me, God values things that are bigger than what you and I might value. Legalism's easy. Sometimes we look at this stuff, we look at these checklists and these religious practices, and we think, oh, that's so hard, nobody can keep up with that. And that's true on one level, but when I have a checklist, I can see if I'm doing it or not doing it, Right? If I measure my spirituality by whether or not I pay my taxes and you know, whether or not I drive over the speed limit, whether or not I you know, drink or smoke or chew or go with girls that do, you know, whether or not the women in your church wear pants, whether or not men have long hair. If this is how we're judging on these external appearances, that legalism becomes really easy. It's a cheap way. It's cheap Religion, but relationships are messy. Relationships are always messy. In a fallen world full of sin, we have so many choices. Adam and Eve had one. And ever since then, we've had more choices than we can handle. Jesus says, come to me. Let me take it from you. Religion says, come to me and let me put it on you. Let me give you penance so that you can feel better about yourself because you've paid for your crimes. You've made up for it. The gospel says there's nothing you could ever do to possibly make up for it. One sin separates you from God for eternity. You can't stand before a holy God. So Jesus stood in your place. He took all of the wrath of God on himself for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. God values people over procedure. He values ritual or reality over ritual and heart over habit. This is pretty crucial. Why? Why does it matter? 
It matters because there's a purpose in the law of God. There's a purpose in the commands that he gives. And these commands were given to enlighten us, to help us to see, to open our eyes to who God is and who we are and how the two interact. The law was given so that we could see better the sinfulness that separates us from God. Sin was already present before God gave the law. But by giving the law, then when we break the law, we're aware of the fact that the sin is there. Before that, the sin was there, we just didn't pay attention to it. God's commands are given to enlighten us, not to enslave us. They were missing the point. We can't miss the point. We can't afford to. Don't get caught up in trying to do things to impress God, because that's what gets us cast out of His presence. You can't impress God. And honestly, what kind of a God would be impressed by the best efforts of small people like us? We are rather pathetic, are we not? We've been told a lot about self-esteem stuff. You know, you're good enough and smart enough and doggone it, people like you. But the reality is, you know better. You don't need some preacher with a Bible thumping you on the head to tell you how sinful you are. You know yourself. Just take a hard look in the mirror. Jesus is saying, listen, I want to take that from you. Stop trying to be perfect because I'm perfect. Come find yourself in me. How does this affect my daily walk? What difference does it make? Jesus says the, the burden is light. That's what he's called us to. It's based on the reality of God's heart. Paul writes to the Galatian church that it was for freedom that you've been set free. When Jesus took your sin and gave you his life, put the Holy Spirit in you, it was so that you could live free in Christ to experience victory in your life. Don't let yourself be yoked again into slavery by sin. Do you really want that? We mentioned the Civil War. In 1863, President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. And from that moment, there were no slaves in America. Congress later passed an amendment to ensure that. But from the moment of that proclamation, all the slaves were free. It took decades for some of them to begin to understand what that meant. And when he set them free, many of them didn't even realize they were free. Just as many of us who are in Christ have still been shackled to the old wineskin of religion. Forget about that. You've been set free so that you can live free. Now, it takes some effort to learn what that means, to figure out how to live free. But you're not a slave. If you are in Christ, you are not a slave. You're not a slave to religion, and you're not a slave to sin. You don't have to be a slave to fear. You don't have to be bound to that old person anymore. Jesus took that from you. But you've got to know it to be able to experience it. You're not a slave. If you're in Christ, say with me, I'm not a slave. 
I'm not a slave. We have been set free. Let go. Give it to Him. With all that you have, give yourself to Christ, understanding that God gave the law to instruct and to build His people. You need to recognize that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath because He's the perfect revelation of God's heart. He is the picture of who God is. And if you will choose to receive Christ, Jesus said, anyone who comes to me, I will, know, I will in no way turn away. Paul wrote that if we will uh, confess with our mouths that Christ is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we'll be saved. Born again, set free, a new creature, all the old gone, and everything becoming new. When that happens, you enter into a Sabbath rest, a cessation of labor. Not you working, but you resting in the work that he already did. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to open your word to see the truth that you have given to us. Lord, I pray that today, even now, even as we continue, that you would speak beyond your servant's stammering tongue. This has never been about what we can do for you. It has never been about jumping through hoops, checking off boxes. It's never been about talent or ability. It's never been about what side of the tracks you're from, your nation of origin. It's not about the sins that we've committed. It's about the Savior who took them away from us. And Father, right now, in this moment, I pray that you would dig deep into our hearts, that you would shine a spotlight into those dark corners that we've kept hidden from you. Cause us to surrender to yourself. And Father, if there's anyone here, shoot, I know there is. Lord, speak to anyone who's hearing my voice right now, who has not received Jesus Christ as their rescue, their parachute, their only hope of life and salvation. Speak to them. Move in a way that effectually draws them to the cross so they can lay the burden down and receive life, life to the fullest in Jesus Christ. to you, Lord. Now we give you ourselves with all that we have. Pray this in Christ's name.